Welcome to Leonard Birdsong Radio on TalkZone.com. Your host, Leonard Birdsong, is a law professor, a former diplomat, and a former federal prosecutor who's here to inform and entertain you with a mix of humor, opinion, and information. Now, here's Leonard Birdsong. Hello, world. This is Leonard Birdsong. It is the 13th day of April, 2017. My show is a unique blend of humor, opinion, storytelling, and information, just as Dave told you. I'm happy to be here with you on Talk Zone Radio. We have a lot to talk about today. Of course, I will read some of my dumb criminal news stories, but I also wanted to tell you a little bit more about FBI investigations. We're going to have a guest who's going to talk about the Middle East, a middle-aged writer, Jeffrey Chaucer, and talk a little bit about the Canterbury Tales. This is stuff from the 14th century, folks. But at any rate, let me start by telling you that this week is generally tax-paying week. Generally, you have to have your federal taxes filed by April 15th. Now, this year, because of a 15th comes on a Saturday or Sunday, I think it's a Saturday, you uh, don't have to pay until the 18th. You have until next Tuesday to file your taxes to be within the law. So we get a tax holiday because, as I understand it, there's a on Monday, the 17th, there's a holiday in Washington, D.C., and all the government agencies are closed. So the IRS has given us until the 18th to file your taxes. I hope you filed yours. I filed mine. Here's a question that I found. Someone wanted to know what percent of the total amount of individual federal income taxes is paid by the wealthiest Americans. Maybe you might want to know this. Well, in 2014... Households with incomes of $250,000 or more accounted for 2.7% of the returns filed. Together, they paid about 51.6% of the $1.4 trillion in income taxes the federal government collected that year. Their average tax rate was 25.7% of their gross adjusted income. How about that information? Didn't know that? Well, now you do. What's the other side of the coin? Well, households with incomes below $50,000 usually account for about 62% of the returns, and collectively they paid about 5.7% of the total amount of income collected by the federal government in 2015. Their average tax rate was about 4.3%. All of these figures come from the Pew Research Center in Washington, D.C., now, I can't go on to my dumb news stories until I talk about this poor fellow doctor, David Dow. I'm sure everyone has now seen the uh, video that's gone viral of security officers pulling him off a plane in Chicago's O'Hare Airport because the plane was overbooked and they needed volunteers to have a some crew get on this plane to go to Kentucky where the plane was going. Dr. Dow did not want to go. They dragged him off the plane. He injured or he was injured. He's still in the hospital. He's already gotten lawyers. It was a horrible scene, horrible 
videos for United Airlines, bad press and bad PR. But a little research will do a lot of stuff here. I just found that the Dr. Dow, who was dragged off the plane, was once a popular singer-songwriter in South Vietnam. He um, performed under the name Dao Do An in the 1960s and the 1970s in Saigon. He specialized in Vietnamese folk and traditional tunes in a band called Bach Viet. Now, he penned, or that is, he wrote two folk songs that are still very popular in Vietnam. My Vietnamese is not very good, but the first song is Tat Nung Dao Din, and the other one is Ta Vi Ta Tam Ao Ta. They are still being sung and are very popular. Now, Dr. Dao was musically inclined, but he became a doctor. He fled Vietnam in 1975 when Saigon fell. He came to the United States. He lives in Louisville, Kentucky. He also studied culinary arts in Louisville's Sullivan University, where he helped instructors refine dishes into their Vietnamese cooking unit. So there you have it, Dr. Dow, making the headlines in a bad way, but an interesting background to this fellow. All right, this is Leonard Birdsong Radio. I have news like that for you. I hope some of it's interesting or helpful. Now we're going to read some of the dumb news stories I collect from around the world. The first one comes from Oregon. The headline read, Thieves took the roof over a man's head. A Las Vegas man whose custom-built 95-square-foot house was recently stolen from an East Oregon truck stop, and he's now gotten his house back. Lawrence Thomas is the man. He, his tiny house was snatched when he stopped to avoid severe weather as he was driving from Seattle to Las Vegas. The house was found just a half mile from the site of the theft. Tiny House Nation, that's one of these new television programs. I wouldn't want to live in a house that small. Next story comes from Pennsylvania, folks. The headline reads, Nope, no work release this time. A man claimed that three to six months in jail was excessive for driving without a license. So Randy Smith, that's Snallsmith, 49, asked to serve his time on work release. Nevertheless, a state court panel called the sentence reasonable. Why? Because it was Smith's 22nd driving offense. A next story also comes from Pennsylvania. The headline Deep doo-doo, maybe? A man who operates a business scooping up pet poop was recently sentenced to two years of probation and fined $500 for using fake Secret Service ID cards and badges to impress women on a dating website. Chris Diorio, 54, of the town of Greensburg, Pennsylvania, also used phony IDs to score government rate Hotel rooms. That is a new no, no, no. Boo, indeed. Peanut Gallery is booing on that one, and they should. All right, we got more stories. Here's one from Texas. Headline. Oh, how silly. Border Patrol agents caught smugglers with 3,000 pounds of marijuana, made to look like watermelons. They tried to sneak the weed in on a truck by wrapping the pot in green bundles at the Far International Bridge Cargo 
facility. It did not work. They were busted. How silly. 3,000 pounds of marijuana made to look like watermelons. All right, this next story comes from Texas also. The headline here. Fat Chance. That's the headline. Austin. Austin police pulled over Florentino Herrera, 48, for driving erratically, officials report. While the officer sat in his cruiser radioing about the stop to the station house, the cruiser dash cam caught Herrera trying to hide cocaine in a fold of his stomach fat. He was charged with DWI and evidence tampering for hiding the cocaine in his belly fat. What do you think about that? (laughs) All right, that's the peanut gallery. We got you. Okay. All right, sticking with Texas, just, just a couple more here. The headline for this story, judge arrested for one finger salute. State District Judge Patrick Garcia has been charged with misdemeanor disorderly conduct for getting into an argument and flipping the finger at a fellow judge in El Paso. The judge turned defendant was angry. Why? Because he believed the lower court judge had undermined a plea bargain arranged in Garcia's court, according to prosecutors. Our next story comes from Uganda. Hellfire, said the headline. Hellfire. A government official in the East African country of Uganda was buried with $5,700 in cash because he wanted to bribe God once he got to heaven, according to reports. Charles Obong, 52, hoped the cash would help him, quote, save him from hellfire, end quote. However, as it turns out, Members of his church later dug him up and gave the cash to his family. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's funny, too. All right, how about this, folks? My last little dumb news story for the day comes from the state of Utah. A motorist in the town of Garland, Utah, called police, fearing he was being followed. When police showed up, they found the driver had reason to be paranoid. Why? He was driving around with 36 pounds of crystal meth hidden in food jars in his car. The police chief said, quote, it was obvious he was on some kind of drug, end quote. It was probably meth, folks, probably meth. (laughs) All right. Okay. It's not that funny. any rate, those are the dumb criminal. Okay, all right, we got it. Those are the the dumb criminal news stories that I had for the day. But I have a little news tidbit here that I wanted to read for you before we take our first break here. This one comes from California. Just a news tidbit. The headline read, they didn't have the breast time in California. 
they didn't have the breast time in California. The story. Former San Diego Mayor Roger Hedgecott and his wife sued the city recently for a trip and fall that allegedly ruptured her silicone breast implants and caused more than $25,000 in damages. Hedgecott was elected mayor in 1983 but resigned two years later amid a campaign donation scandal. What a trip and fall. Not the breast time in California. <laughs> All right, it's not that funny, but it is a little bit funny. All right, folks, this is Leonard Birdsong Radio. we got more to come. We've got more information, some news tidbits, talk a little bit about how the FBI or what they may be doing in their investigation about the Trump uh, campaign colluding with the Russians, if they did. But we're going to take a little break here. I want you to stay with me. We'll be back with more Leonard Birdsong Radio. Dave, take me out, please. Consumer Debt Counselors is the company that will help you get out of debt. Consumer Debt Counselors is a licensed, accredited nonprofit agency that specializes in educating people about credit and debt and helping people resolve issues with debt, even student loan debt. There are so many federal regulations. Most people have more options than they realize, and Consumer Debt Counselors can uncover all of your eligible solutions, including lowering your payment or getting out of default. If you want a partner that will work with you to achieve financial success, talk to the team at Consumer Debt Counselors. They have an A-plus Better Business Bureau rating, so these guys are the real deal. Your first consultation is free, and all sessions are kept confidential. Give them a call at 1-800-820-9232 or go to ConsumerDebtCounselors.org slash birdsong. The number again is 800-820-9232. Although he's been involved in serious criminal law work over the years as a prosecutor, a defense attorney, and a law professor, Leonard Birdsong knows that it's good to stay grounded. That means not always taking criminal law so seriously and instead just having a good laugh at some dumb criminals and their dumber crimes. Several years ago, he began to collect and compile weird and funny criminal law stories. He shares some of them weekly on his TalkZone Internet radio program. And now you can read more of them yourself in one of his 14 humor books. He has two book series, Professor Birdsong's Dumbest Criminal Law Stories and Professor Birdsong's Weird Criminal Law stories. They're available for purchase in either paperback or Kindle edition by going to the author link on the homepage at leonardbirdsong.com. Leonard knows that you'll get a few good laughs or at least a few chuckles from his collections of dumb and weird criminal law stories. Check them out for yourself by going to the author link at leonardbirdsong.com. Welcome back to Leonard Birdsong Radio on talkzone.com. Hello, folks. Hello, folks. I told you I'd be back with you. This is Leonard Birdsong on Leonard Birdsong Radio. Happy to be with you here today. This is tax week. You have to get your taxes filed by the 18th of April. Usually it's the 15th, but because of a holiday and the fact that the 15th falls on the weekend, the government is giving you until the 18th. 
Last week, uh, among other things, I talked to you about immunity of witnesses. We had a General Flynn, who was the um, national security advisor for the Donald Trump administration, lasted in office only 24 days. He uh, was fired because supposedly he talked to the Russians, shouldn't have done that. It may have been that he has colluded with him before he took office. But at any rate, I talked to you about the fact of government can give you immunity against incriminating yourself, and it's found, uh, the statute is found at Title 18 of the United States Code in Chapter 601. The uh, definitions are actually found at 6001. The basic immunity statute is at 6002, and uh, it's used, use immunity, the basic kind of immunities given in courts almost every day so that people can help the government put bad people away. It's also called turning state's evidence. You get either a reduced sentence or no time for helping out by going to the grand jury and telling what's going on. Now, we know from the FBI director that there is an FBI investigation going on about whether the Trump campaign colluded with the Russian government in trying to upset our last elections in 2016. That is, the Russians allegedly wanted Hillary Clinton to lose. They spread a lot of false information in an effort to help Donald Trump. That's the theory of the government. So what's happening with the FBI? We don't know for sure, but I can tell you based on my experience as a federal prosecutor, I'm pretty sure that the FBI has at least one and maybe two grand juries going. What are grand juries? A grand jury is a secretive body of citizens who come together to listen to evidence that government agencies may have come up with and they want to expose to determine whether certain people should be prosecuted. They try to find whether there's probable cause that a crime has been committed. I used to do a lot of grand jury work when I was in Washington, D.C. The grand jury does not have a judge. It does not have two attorneys. There's only one attorney. That attorney is from the government. The attorney can bring in evidence of people who are targets of an investigation. Who may be the targets? Well, some of these people... In this particular FBI investigation, maybe targets who've been picked up on surveillance under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, and there may be information that they have done things with the Trump Trump campaign. Now, I don't know for sure. I'm not in this investigation, but I've been in enough investigations to know that federal grand juries last for 18 months, and in 18 months you can do a lot of investigation. Out of grand juries, very often you will get indictments. People who are targets get indicted. Very often the government will charge people with conspiracy, federal conspiracy. You can go to prison up to five years for one count of conspiracy. However, very often the FBI wants you to work with the government, turn state's evidence, and they will give you immunity from prosecution if you testify in the grand jury and testify truthfully and perhaps testify to the trial court about what 
went on during the conspiracy and what actions could be taken. Now, all of this is very hush-hush. It's not done in the open. It's done behind closed doors. Very often the people who are under investigation have already been picked up and may be waiting bail. They may also be waiting sentencing. They are debriefed about what they know, and this debriefing normally entails them being in some secret location, maybe in the courthouse. Normally there is a FBI agent. There is the prosecutor. There is the defense attorney for the defendant. And uh, there may be a court reporter outside of the office or room where this is being held is a United States marshal. In the room, the prosecutors generally tell the defendant they want to cooperate, that, look, we've got you jammed up. We have this evidence on you. They show the evidence. Maybe they have it recorded. They say, you know, you can go to jail for this, but you can help us out, and maybe it'll cut your time. If they decide to do that, everyone has to be on board. The prosecutor has to be on board. The FBI has to be on board. The uh, defense attorney has to be on board and the defendant. Now, when I say on board, that means all of these people sign what's known as a plea agreement. It's got a lot of language in it. Most of them are about 10 to 13 pages long. And in essence, they say that uh, me, defendant, will work with the government to expose some crime. In turn, I will get immunity from prosecution or I'll get a limited prosecution or a shorter time in jail or in prison. Now, basically, this is all done hush-hush. All the parties have to sign. The defendant has to sign. The prosecutor has to sign. The defense attorney has to sign, all saying they're doing this uh, in an effort to bring this investigation to a close. Now, basically, the, we want the people who are less culpable to agree to these crimes and agree to turn state's evidence so they can tell on people who are higher up in the food chain, the people we really want to get in prison or put in prison. So all this is going on. Most people don't know about it. People may be under investigation. Some of you out there may be under investigation by a grand jury, but you may never know about it. Grand juries work in secret. When I was in Washington, D.C., in the U.S. Attorney's Office, federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., the grand jury floor is on the third floor, and no one but the U.S. Attorney, a U.S. Marshals, rather, can let you off in the elevators on the third floor. It's very secretive. I used to sometimes have to try cases across the Potomac River in Virginia. The Eastern District Courthouse is uh, in Alexandria, Virginia. The court, the, the grand jury meets not in the basement of this 22 story building, but in the sub basement. The only people who can go down there are marshals and the people who are the grand jurors. There is a law. There is what's known as grand jury secrecy. The grand jurors cannot tell anyone what's going on. The court reporters can't tell anyone what goes on in a grand jury. The prosecutor cannot tell anyone what's going on in the grand jury. And the people who go into the grand jury as witnesses 
probably should not say what's going on, but they're not under the law stopped from doing it. The only problem is sometimes when people spill their guts, they get killed. So grand jury secrecy is something that we have to help fight crime. I don't know much about the FBI investigation per se that's going on, but I do know how the process works. It may take 18 months to get all of the information they need in this investigation. It may be shorter than that, but I certainly know that it's going on in secret and people work at it day after day. I've been there. Glad I don't have to do it anymore. All right, that's all I want to say. We know that there are investigations going on. You now know we have immunity. You can get it if you cooperate. You also know a little bit about grand juries. Grand juries are made up of about 23 people. In order to indict someone, a majority of 12 people have to vote for a what's called a true bill. That way we will have an indictment. Very often indictments are sealed, that is, Many indictments are public, and reporters can go down to the courthouse and find out about them. In some of these high-level cases, the court will put a order that these uh, indictments will be sealed. That is, they cannot be opened until all of the conspirators or all the people who have been under investigation have been arrested and brought before the court. We'll see how this all works out. Just stick with me over the next month. I think things will develop, and I'll talk to you more about how these things work. I've been through them myself on both sides as a prosecutor, federal prosecutor, and as a defense attorney. All right. Well, we've got more to come. We've got a guest coming up. Fred Jonathan is his name. He is a scholar. He is a lawyer. He knows a lot about the Middle Ages, and we're going to talk about Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales. Why might that be important? Well, the Canterbury Tales stand conspicuous among the great literary achievements of the Middle Ages. Told by a jovial procession of pilgrims, a knight, a priest, a yeoman, a miller, a cook, as they ride toward the shrine of St. Thomas a Becket, or really Thomas a Becket, and uh, they present a picture of the nation, of a nation, that is England, taking shape and some of the laws that took shape and how some of those laws have come down to us in the United States. We share a tradition of common law that developed in England and then it came over to the colonies in the United States. Much of our law is based on British common law. So it's all interesting. We'll put it together with you. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to Dr. and Professor Fred Jonathan. Stay with us. There's always more to come on Leonard Birdsong Radio here at Talk Zone. Consumer Debt Counselors is the company that will help you get out of debt. Consumer Debt Counselors is a licensed, accredited, nonprofit agency that specializes in educating people about credit and debt and helping people resolve issues with debt, even student loan debt. There are so many federal regulations. Most people have more options than they realize, and Consumer Debt Counselors can uncover all of your eligible solutions, including lowering your payment or getting out of default. 
If you want a partner that will work with you to achieve financial success, talk to the team at Consumer Debt Counselors. They have an A-plus Better Business Bureau rating, so these guys are the real deal. Your first consultation is free, and all sessions are kept confidential. Give them a call at 1-800-820-9232 or go to ConsumerDebtCounselors.org slash Birdsong. The number again is 800-820-9232. Are you considering law school? Then you probably have tons of questions about the application process, the admissions process, the benefits of a legal career, and what it takes to succeed in law school. You'll find the answers to these questions and more in Professor Birdsong's Law School Guide, Techniques for Choosing and Applying to Law School. Inside, you'll find helpful chapters on the history of the lawyer, why you should apply to law school, things you need to know about applying, and more. You have the ability and the drive. Now, get the advice that will guide you into the legal profession by helping you successfully submit your application to the law school of your choice. Professor Birdsong's award-winning Law School Guide, Techniques for Choosing and Applying to Law School. Available for purchase on Amazon.com or through the author link at LeonardBirdsong.com. You're listening to Leonard Birdsong Radio on TalkZone.com. Here's Professor Birdsong. Great to be back with you here on TalkZone Radio. This is Leonard Birdsong. I've got a guest on the line, Dr. and Professor Fred Jonathan. Are you there, Fred? Uh, Yes, I believe so. Well, thanks so much for coming on with us. And let me just tell the listeners a little bit about you. You are a scholar. You are a lawyer. You grew up in New York City, got a scholarship to Columbia University there, got your English literature degree there, and later uh, went to Cornell, where you got a Ph.D. in literature of the Middle Ages and Renaissance. You went to law school at the University of Indiana, you also, after graduation, became a law clerk to the federal judge, William C. Lee. He was actually the chief judge of the Northern District of Indiana. And you now teach at Barry Law School in Orlando. You've published a lot of pieces. The last one that I've read had to do with what was called The Law and the Host of the Canterbury Tales. It was published uh 2010, a very interesting read. Now, Professor Johnson, why do I have you on? I think it's because we will learn a lot about the development of our own law by reading things from the 14th century. Do you agree? Oh, yes, uh, I'd agree. I agree. I think that um, looking into the history of law uh, tells us a lot about our present law and gives us a sense of perspective uh, about uh, our law and how to understand it. Well, that's absolutely right. That's just what I think. So tell us about Geoffrey Chaucer. Now, he was, some people think he was a lawyer because seemingly he knew so much about the law back in the 1300s. But you say he wasn't a lawyer, uh, but tell us about him, some of the things he may have done aside from write the Canterbury Tales. Well, uh, I think it's more accurate to call him a uh, civil servant. Um, Okay. He uh, had a, a variety of posts. Uh, for the uh, English government, the government of the English king. And uh, one uh, of those posts was uh, controller of the uh, wool, of wool imports into the city of London. 
Uh, and that was an interesting job because uh, it was his business to uh, decide what the duty should be for textiles uh, that came uh, mostly from uh, uh, the Netherlands uh, to uh, London. Uh, and uh, to do this job, he'd have to know a lot about uh, the law of uh, taxation. Uh, he'd have to know a lot about contracts. And he'd have to be a very shrewd individual so that uh, uh, various individuals who would bring uh, these products into London wouldn't try to put something over on him. Uh, right. He might have to bring cases to the court of the exchequer, which was the uh, court for business dealings and taxation uh, in London at the time. Um, and, uh, and so all of this implies that, that he knew something about, about the law. Uh, and uh, later on, he uh, was um, in charge of the king's works, and that was a, a position in which uh, he uh, took care of the maintenance of various buildings for the uh, royal government. Uh, and once again, he'd have to make a contract with uh, builders. Uh, he'd, uh, again, have to know a lot about uh, uh, contract law, about uh, the workings of the government to uh, pay for these uh, works and to maintain them. Uh, so all of this does imply uh, a knowledge of the law. And uh, I just would like to add one other thing that uh, he uh, mentions in his works, friends of his work, which were lawyers. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, all of this uh, indicates that he probably was part of a, uh, a legal culture, if you will, uh, right. while he was writing his poetry. Right, okay. And it was poetry. Now, let me, as I understand, he sometimes served as an ambassador to other countries, or he was sent on on yes, trips to represent the King of England in various countries. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, he um, went on uh, trips to France, to Spain, uh, to Italy, uh, to negotiate uh, peace treaties, uh, to negotiate uh, loans, for the uh, English king, and uh, once again, uh, this would uh, indicate uh, a kind of shrewdness in terms of negotiating these agreements, as well as uh, the legalisms that, that would be involved. So, um, uh, uh, quite right, uh, I, I see you, you read my, my uh, article very carefully. Uh, all of this... It's a well-written well article. I mean, it's very entertaining, and it's very well-written. Uh, well, well, thank you, thank you very much. I I, I appreciate that. Um, now, uh, uh, the uh, particular interest of mine was uh, innkeepers' liability and uh, the character of Harry, Harry Bailey in the Canterbury Tales. Um, so, uh, I, I might well, well, first of all, wait, wait, let us now. Everyone doesn't know about the Canterbury Tales. I had to read some of it in high school. And some people read it in college. Why don't you just tell us what it's what the Canterbury Tales mean? Well, uh, the Canterbury Tales uh, was written in the 14th century. Um, it is unfinished, and I'll, I'll explain uh, how how so in a little while. Um, but it's what we call a frame narrative. Uh, that means that uh, Chaucer included a collection of different stories within a framework. Uh, the basic framework is that a group of pilgrims, approximately, uh, well, 28 to be exact, 
get together at an inn in Southampton, which is a at the time was a suburb of London. Uh, and Southampton or to, South Ward? Right, right. Uh, they're about to embark on a trip to um, uh, Canterbury Cathedral, a, a pilgrimage. So it, it has a religious objective, but uh, in the course of this, uh, Chaucer includes a lot of entertainment uh, for the pilgrims. So um, they get together at an inn called the Tabard Inn in Southampton, and Harry Bailey is the owner and proprietor of the inn. And so at uh, a dinner party uh, for the uh, pilgrims uh, before they're going to set out the next day, he uh, proposes to them uh, what I call a contract, uh, essentially. Uh, it's also called the storytelling game. He says, uh, look, uh, you know, um, it would be kind of boring just to make this trip to Canterbury uh, and uh, to sit there on your horses uh, dumb as a stone. Uh, you want to entertain yourself along the way. And so uh, he says, uh, I'll tell you what, um, uh, here's my proposal. If you make me the uh, uh, governor, guide, judge, and all that uh, for your trip to uh, Canterbury, uh, I will uh, arrange uh, for you all to tell stories. Each one of you must tell two stories on the way going to Canterbury and two stories on the way back. And um, if anyone um, uh, disobeys me, uh, doesn't uh, do what I say, or does not submit to my judgment about who goes next, or uh, uh, when someone should stop telling a, a story, uh, well, that person will then have to pay all our expenses on the way to Canterbury and back. <laughs> Quite a bargain. The winner. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, and uh, so... Uh, he says, I will decide who is the winner of this uh, storytelling game. And uh, the person who's the winner uh, will get a free dinner and lodging uh, when we come back to the Tabard Inn at the end of our uh, our trip. Uh, so that's okay. basically the, the, uh, the arrangement he makes. Okay. So now they go on the pilgrimage. Let's... Let me, before we get into it anymore, it's, as I understand it, you wanted to talk about what's called the innkeeper's liability. That means an innkeeper is liable for any harm that happens to his guests, and he may have to pay. That concept came over to us in America later, didn't it? That's quite correct. Um, it's actually a very ancient uh, law. Uh, it uh, originated uh, with the Romans, um, the, uh, you find it in a collection of Roman law called the Digest of Justinian, which was uh, uh, written down in the 6th century. Uh, but then, as, as you know, uh, with the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, and uh, the Roman Empire extended as far as Great Britain, uh, yes. a lot of these laws broke down and degenerated. But yes. uh, with, with the Middle Ages... Uh, when uh, England was developing its commerce and its sophistication as a nation, uh, a lot of these Roman laws were, were revived as matters of common law. And what fascinated me was that uh, it was just about during the lifetime of Chaucer that innkeeper's liability uh, became part of the English law. And basically the idea is that uh, an innkeeper would be strictly liable for any property 
that a guest at the inn might might lose uh, uh, through robbery or through uh, any kind of uh, uh, mishap that might occur at the inn. Now, strict mm-hmm. liability means that whether it was the fault of the innkeeper or whether some thieves came in and broke into the inn and stole from the guests, or um, uh, whether uh, uh, another um, person who stayed at the inn, uh, another guest, robbed uh, the uh, the individual uh, that we're interested in. Uh, uh, even if it's not the fault of the innkeeper, the innkeeper would still be liable for that loss. And uh, uh-huh. that, was part, that was part of the common law of England, which eventually came over here. Now, I understand that here, you, as a matter of fact, we've talked about this before. In America, it's now by statute, and it's not as strict as it used to be in 14th city, 14th century England. Is that correct? The well, innkeeper's well, right. liability concept? The uh, the common law would, would make the um, innkeeper liable for the full extent of the guest's loss of property while the guest is staying at the inn. Um, but uh, by statute, uh, all the states have limited that liability to uh, a certain amount. So someone who uh, may have $40,000 in jewels and loses that at, uh, say, a hotel, well, uh, the hotel is not going to be responsible for that much. There will be some amount that the hotel might be liable for, but uh, no more than that. But... Um, uh, the, these laws also are, are uh, read, are construed, uh, so that um, the, uh, the proprietor of the hotel or motel or whatever it is must provide some kind of notice to the guest. Right, maybe right, notice, indeed. And if that's not there, then uh, we go back to the common law. So uh, the, uh, the uh, hotel owner must still strictly provide that notice as it is given in the statute, uh, in order to get the limitation on liability. And that's why in hotels and motels, they suggest you lock your valuables in a safe they provide in the room, right? That's right, uh, because under those circumstances, then the the hotel will be uh, liable for your property because it's understood uh, what you are uh, uh, putting into the safekeeping of the hotel. Uh, But otherwise, the, the, the statute limiting uh, uh, the uh, liability of the uh, of the innkeeper would uh, prevail. All right. Well, listen to this. I'm going to have to take a pause for the cause, and I'd like, if you can, stay with us for a few moments. I want to come back and hear something from you about one of the tales that were told in the Canterbury Tales. Can you do that? Um, uh, well, certainly I, I can do that. Uh, be happy to. All right, stick with us. This is Leonard Birdsong on Talk Zone. I've been talking to Professor Dr. Fred Jones about Fred Jonathan. I'm sorry, not Fred Jones. Fred Jonathan about the Canterbury Tales and Geoffrey Chaucer and the 14th century, how laws in England have come over to the United States. Dave, why don't you take me out and we'll be back. Consumer Debt Counselors is the company that will help you get out of debt. Consumer Debt Counselors is a licensed, accredited nonprofit agency that specializes in educating people about credit and debt and helping people resolve issues with debt, even student loan debt. 
There are so many federal regulations. Most people have more options than they realize, and consumer debt counselors can uncover all of your eligible solutions, including lowering your payment or getting out of default. If you want a partner that will work with you to achieve financial success, talk to the team at Consumer Debt Counselors. They have an A-plus Better Business Bureau rating, so these guys are the real deal. Your first consultation is free, and all sessions are kept confidential. Give them a call at 1-800-820-9232 or go to ConsumerDebtCounselors.org slash birdsong. The number again is 800-820-9232. You're listening to Leonard Birdsong Radio on TalkZone.com. Here's Professor Birdsong. Yes, it is Leonard Birdsong. Back with you on Leonard Birdsong Radio. I have a guest, Fred Jonathan. It's Professor Dr. Fred Jonathan. We've been talking about Jeffrey Chaucer. We've been talking about his Canterbury Tales. We've been talking about innkeeper's liability. Are you still with us, Professor Jonathan? Uh, yes, certainly. All right. Well, this is we're coming up near the end of the show, but I wanted to just for people who may not have read it, and maybe it'll spur people to read some of it. Can you tell us one of the tales from the Canterbury Tales, one that you might like and that we can do in a few moments here? Well, I, I'll tell you what. Um, if if you don't mind, uh, I'll, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the uh, the storytelling game, how uh, Harry Bailey sets it up, and and uh, this will involve uh, a part of one of the tales. Um, All right. You, you know, um, uh, Southampton um, uh, in London at that time was known for being a little bit lawless. In other words, <laughs> the rules of London uh, uh, or the laws of London uh, couldn't be imposed upon Southampton because at that time it was not really a governmental part of, of London. And so a lot of things went on there, uh, such as prostitution such as gambling, uh, there was no control over uh, innkeepers and, and uh, vittlers, people who sold food. So it, it was a place uh, known as a kind of red light district, if you will. Right, right. So it was very important for, for uh, uh, travelers uh, who went there to have uh, an inn which, which they can really rely on, uh, where they, they would be safe. And um, in this agreement that Harry Bailey makes with the pilgrims, uh, he follows all the procedures of, of, of an oral contract uh, according to how it should be made uh, uh, at, the, at the time. In other words, um, the contract, it would be recited, uh, all the uh, duties and all the rights in the contract, and uh, everyone would have to agree. And, and then at the end, to seal the bargain, uh, instead of signing on the dotted line, uh, everyone would have, would have a drink. Um, and, and that would be uh, the sign that everyone agreed uh, to the contract. And uh, in the course of the story, you know, Harry Bailey decides uh, uh, the order in which the pilgrims should speak. Uh, but, of course, that, that doesn't last very long. One of the uh, pilgrims breaks in. Uh, but there's one uh, particular story. Um, it uh, occurs in the nun's priest's tale. This is a priest who is accompanying um, uh, the priorist uh, in the story. And it's a tale about, uh, really a fable about uh, a rooster um, who uh, 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 is uh, eventually gets in trouble because he's carried away by, by a fox. 
All right. You see, uh, he uh, uh, tells the fox, "Well, you know, why, why don't you why don't you boast uh, to all the people who are running after you uh, about what you've done?" And so the fox uh, decides that uh, that's a good idea, and so he uh, opens his uh, uh, muzzle, I guess, with which he was holding the rooster, and begins to boast. Uh, that, you know, I've gotten away with this. And that gives uh, Chanticleer a chance to get away uh, from the fox. Uh, but in the course of their story, there's an interesting bit about, uh, about an inn. Uh, there are uh, two pilgrims who are uh, uh, traveling, and they uh, stop at a town. Uh, and one of them manages to find a nice room in the inn. Okay. Uh, but uh, the inn is completely taken up at that point, and the other one uh, has to uh, uh, be in the stable. Um, and so uh, the one uh, in, the, uh, in the nice room, uh, he has a dream in which his friend calls out to him, help, help, I'm being robbed. Uh, so he gets up and he says, well, that, that's quite a dream, but he dismisses it. Uh, he um, thinks, well, it's not very important, and so he goes back to bed. And twice he is awakened this way, and then the third time his friend appears in his dream all bloodied and uh, says to him, uh, it's too late now, I've been killed. I, I've, mm. uh, and, and so uh, uh, the fellow who was in the room, he gets up the next morning, looks for his friend, and can't find him anywhere. And so he now believes that his dream was important. Uh, so he... Um, uh, his friend tells him and had told him in the dream, look for a dung cart. Uh, I'll be in that dung cart. And so he sees the dung cart now uh, in the morning, and he starts uh, calling for the sheriff, calling for help. Uh, and they overturn the dung cart, and there's the body of his friend. And as a result, um, they find that the innkeeper was involved in this uh, uh, nefarious scheme and uh, and the innkeeper is tried and and jailed and uh, um, uh, and ends up uh, hanged. Uh, and yeah. uh, this is a, a kind of story which I think underlines the fact that uh, your innkeeper was a very important uh, to be yeah. a trustworthy person uh, when you're traveling around in the Middle Ages. Right. I do remember that story. Well, thank you so much for that. I'm going to have to sign off now, but I'm really pleased to have heard from you, doctor and professor. And, well, was, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the history of law, so that is why I wanted to have you on. I wanted to talk to the listeners about how things from the 13th century are still with us, at least in concept. Okay? Okay, that's fine. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Okay. This is Leonard Birdsong. We're still here. Just finished talking to Dr. Professor Fred Jonathan about the Chaucer, Jeffrey Chaucer and his Canterbury Tales. I've got a little time. Okay, folks. That's the peanut, ga that's the peanut gallery going crazy over our guest. I'm going to, um, end the story with a few more news tidbits that were sent to me by my research assistant. And then, as usual, I have a few riddles. Here's one news tidbit. What's worse than coming upon a python in the Florida Everglades? Well, coming across a 144-pound python. 
It seems that snake trappers Nicholas Banos and Leonardo Sanchez bagged the massive reptile as part of an ongoing python-removing effort to protect dwindling deer, raccoons, and other native animals in the Everglades that are being eaten by pythons. Ugh. Here's another one from Florida. <laughs> the headline read, Thief Gets Loose. A shoplifting suspect escaped from a Florida police station by making a hole in the bathroom ceiling while an officer stood guard outside. Michael Caruso, 31, removed an exhaust pan fan and made the hole big enough to climb through at the Orange City Police Department building. He was recaptured quite quickly afterwards, but thief gets loose, it said. All right. Here's one about irony. This story comes from, where is it, Kentucky. It says, powered by irony. The Kentucky Coal Mining Museum in Harlan County is switching to clean energy. The museum last week began installing solar panels on its roof in hopes of cutting its electricity bills. Quote, of course, in the current economic times we're in, any way to save money is always appreciated, said Brandon Robinson, a spokesman for Southeast Kentucky Community and Technical College, with, which owns the museum. All right. Here's one from Japan. Headline, he has a clean conscience. A garbage collector in Japan found $370,000 in trash, in the trash. It was inside of um, a, uh, a dumpster. The worker found it. He's 23. They didn't give his name, but he turned it in right away. It was uh, in a container, here it is, in a trash disposal plant in the town of Numata, Japan. He didn't steal the money. He gave it back right away. Good for him. All right, folks. I'm going to end by telling you that if you want to get in touch with me by email, my email address is lbirdsong22 at gmail.com. You can write me. I will... Write you back. Or I'll talk to you, talk about what you want to know on the show. Also, you know, you can buy my books at my website, www.leonardbirdsong.com. You can also go to my blog, www.birdsongslaw.com and read some of my dumb criminal news stories for free. Right now, here are a couple of riddles you might want to know. Did you know that grave did you know graveyards are popular? No, well, now really, it should be phrased like this. How do we know that graveyards are popular? That's a better way. How do we know that graveyards are popular? Think about it for a minute. I'm going to give you the answer. You've probably figured it out. We know that graveyards are popular because people are just dying to get in. All right. Here's the next riddle. 
What did the policeman say to the belly button? What did the policeman say to the belly button? All right, the police said to the belly button, you're under a vest. All right, the last, the last riddle here. What did one wall say to the other? What did one wall say to the other? Think about it. Well, what one wall said to the other is, I'll meet you at the corner. Oh, that's so corny, but it is funny. <laughs> this is Leonard Birdsong on Leonard Birdsong Radio on TalkZone.com. It's so good to have been with you. I'll be back next week. You can listen to me 24-7 on TalkZone. Uh, so you can listen to the show again if you want. But I'm here on Thursdays from 1 until 2 Eastern Standard Time. I love being here with you. There's no fake news on this program. Keep listening, folks. Dave, thanks for everything. You can take me out.